Welcome to the AWS TechCast. We're Solution Architects based in APAC, and we help customers adopt AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dive into topics of interest. Hello, my name's Shane Baldacino, and this is episode 59 of the AWS Tech Chat podcast. And joining me today for what seems to be a more regular chat is Dr. Peter Stansky. Twice in four weeks. What has happened, Pete? Have you lost your other job? Hi, Shane. Hi, listeners. It's great to be back on the show, as always. Um, no, I haven't, uh, but I have been downsizing. I've gone from 12 jobs to three jobs, which <laughs> I think means I have a little bit more time to hang out with you and uh, do more shows. But um, the Sydney Summit is... Um, obviously happening next year, uh, and I'm one of the folks heavily involved with it. So uh, that's become uh, my little other distraction, Shane. So it's only the uh, you know the largest summit in the Southern Hemisphere. I think it's the uh, second largest summit um, worldwide. So uh, yeah, maybe quite a little few more cycles from me. But as always, it's good to be here with you and talking all things Tech Chat. Good one. It's amazing to think that planning for an event that is six months away, is it six months? Mm-hmm. Maybe six months, you know, begins so early. And, it's, you know, there's a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes. And lots of technical folks do a lot of thinking and head scratching and creating content. So uh, hats off to everybody who's presenting. So uh, hopefully on the day, it's like a wedding, Shane, right? You know, you work really hard for that one big day. Uh, for us, it's a, a few days in Australia and at the Sydney Summit. Um, so yeah, lots of cool stuff going on right now as we speak. But by the way, um, just to change gears a bit, you've been sending me a lot of photos Um uh, late night uh, off your amazing gates that you're building at home. I think it's worth bringing this up to, the, to our listeners. So uh, you've got some cool stuff. Yeah, so look, the yard work at my house continues. Uh, you know, it probably won't stop for probably another year of weekends and Sundays. Um, look, I've now got backlit laser cut gate panels over a five meter span. They look really awesome. You know, a lot of hard work, you know, lots of grommets for cable protection, you know, strain relief, IP68 rated lighting, and it's PLC controlled. And it's all wired in, you know, relays and so on. But, you know, as I was building this, I was thinking, you know, how am I going to power these lights? You know, what event is going to cause them to turn on? You know, do I power these on a timer or is it something static? Or perhaps something dynamic, right? And look, you know, I know your house uh, uh, via photos, but uh, I do expect more from you. Well, You know that, right? Well, exactly. Look, I've got photo electric through beam laser sensors in my front yard to trigger events. And that's the thing here, Pete. Life is about events. This happens and then do this. And I'll confess, I don't have an obvious trigger other than lux levels and then using a timer, but I'm working on something a bit more dynamic. Probably another laser, other than being really cool, they're reliable and I've ran a few spare cores of cable. All right, so long story short here, Pete, software is just like houses, you know, they are changing. Sure, I can use a mundane timer, but I can do so much more. And sure, you can have that EC2 instance or container running all the time, but just like the electricity powering my gates, there are now options. So today in this themed episode of AWS Tech Chat, We're going to talk all things event-driven architecture, which is fueling much of the innovation within AWS. How does that sound, Pete? Are you going to tell me you were doing, you know, this in your Sega Genesis or Mega Drive days? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, the game developer. Well, actually, you know, to be honest, if you if you wind the clock back a little bit, you know, event-driven um, architectures at the end of the day do have to come back to silicon, right? So at the silicon level, you know, when you if any of you are inclined to be coding in assembler or perhaps building embedded solutions in C or other programming languages, maybe even Rust, um, you know, there's something called you know there are these trap vectors or you know, non-maskable interrupts. You know, all of this stuff actually is at the hardware level fueling all the support for event handlers and uh, makes the CPU get distracted perhaps via, you know, triggers or voltages going up and down to actually make them do stuff, which in many ways, Shane, you know, is really the fundamental plumbing that uh, hopefully sets the scene for this episode. Great. So it's going to be a great show today, but let's quickly touch on some news. And there's always something happening, but maybe we're sandbagging for reInvent. Is that a thing? (laughs) <laughs> I don't want sandbag. There's lots of stuff happening if you look at uh, what's new, but uh, there's a lot of stuff uh, that we will be announcing in, at uh, reInvent. So you guys are going to have to hold off and wait. Um, you know, when we're putting the show uh, notes together, you know, I noticed that there wasn't really much around CloudFront until the last few days. So we've now gone from 191 to 200 um, CloudFront Edge locations. So nine just popped up, so to speak. So we've got Brussels, Belgium, uh, and with this new edge location, um, our Belgium uh, users um, will now should see at least an up to 28% improvement in latency when using CloudFront in a part of uh, part of Europe. And uh, the additional four edge locations are in um, uh, Tokyo, Japan, uh, one edge location also in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, and the other locations are basically in Colombia, Chile, and Argentina. Now, with these edge locations, um, you know, web users uh, should experience uh, at least an average of 60% uh, improvement in latency when accessing content through CloudFront. So, you know, woohoo, lots of cool new uh, stuff coming your way, folks, uh, at a much faster yeah, great rate. Great benefit for those people in you know, Colombia, Chile, Argentina. But I think it gets better on the CloudFront side of things. So effective November 1st, 2019, CloudFront will reduce the pricing for on-demand data transfer by up to 56% in South America. And you can refer to the new South American pricing on the CloudFront pricing page for the more particulars around this. Pete, we joke about how much CloudFront has grown. So I was doing a little bit of research on this. The overall points of presence footprint is now growing at 50% per year since we launched the 100th pop in 2017. We've expanded to 77 cities in 34 countries, including China, Israel, Denmark, Norway, South Africa, UAE, Bahrain, Portugal, and Belgium. And uh, given its size and reach, CloudFront has been uh, used to deliver some pretty high-end, you know, highly visible live streaming events. Uh, so those of you who are in the US, uh, uh, the 53rd uh, Super Bowl via Prime Video. Uh, if you're perhaps in the UK, uh, you may have seen the Royal Wedding going back a little bit. Uh, and we did some cool stuff there with actual facial recognition too. Uh, we did the uh, the Winter Olympics, you know, the uh, the Commonwealth Games, you know, a multitude of soccer games for those of you who are highly inclined to watch uh, the FIFA World Cup. Um, and so much more, right? And with um, you know, regions and AZs, we still have 22 regions spanning 69 availability zones with three more in the work chain. So three more regions on the way. Yeah. So look, speaking of regions and AZs, listeners, are you aware of infrastructure.aws? In case you're not, it's a flashy interactive map. Looks like it must be some modern framework that's much cooler than my Vi skills. So the map shows you all of our regions, allowing you to hone in on the specific areas and what we have running there, but there is more. 
Uh, there's a heck of a lot more. So is there a pair of steak knives with that chain? Could be, but look, but by more, you know, we're talking about availability zones, the regions, our network, and the hardware ranging from the custom silicon, the load balancers, and storage. Look, it's really impressive, right? It's really nice and clear laid out. Um, there's a great job of visually explaining many of these key concepts so far. If you aren't aware, head over and take a look at infrastructure.aws. Um, and uh, go visually see what's going on. I, I had a bit of a play with it when it first got released a little while back, and uh, it's a really great way to summarize uh, how we span the globe from a region footprint as well as uh, the other cool thing I really liked was spinning spinning the globe around and seeing all of the actual major links. It's uh, little things that interest you there, Pete. Good to hear. Uh, it's, it's in the detail, Shane. It's in the detail. It's Look, I have a little bit that keep me happy. <laughs> Look, I have to cut in and say, yeah, this is good. But if you have a friendly solution architect available, get them up on the whiteboard and they can deep dive into any of this for you. Absolutely. And look... Um so on with the show. Um, this is a builder show. So speaking of builders, we love to build uh, at LVS. And uh, as we prepare for reInvent, which is coming up uh, in the next, uh, well, within a month or so from now, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's a place where you get free AWS education and um, you know lots of other cool things. So we highly recommend uh, you search uh, uh, and sign up if you haven't already. Uh, if you want to go and be involved in many of our other events, uh, go and hop onto your favorite search engine and type AWS events. Uh, and there'll be something hopefully in your local region, your geography, uh, that's either online or in person or even on demand. And uh, just on the, on the uh, reInvent side of things, December 2 to the 6th in Las Vegas. Uh, pencil that in. Uh, your friendly tech chat hosts will be there in some shape, way or form, aren't we, Shane? We will. Uh, yes, and hopefully uh, we'll, uh, we'll see you there. And if you are going to attend and you want to catch up with some of us, uh, drop us a note at awstechchat at amazon.com. There we go. Hey, my birthday falls in that gap. I'm not saying when, Pete, but I'm expecting a present. <laughs> okay uh can you give me a hint when uh when and how young will you be turning well, same age as last year but just add another year look the gray hair should be a giveaway but look we're all friends here i think i'm actually turning 38 i had to have a think about this wow that's uh, it's a nice age chain uh, i hit that a little while back i won't tell you when either but uh yes <laughs> okay <laughs> it's been it feels like it was only yesterday but it was so back on topic this event Reinvent, you know, it's ideal for developers and engineers, system architects, technical decision makers, and so on. So look, it's getting to the pointy end now, as Pete said, one month to go or so. So if you are going, ensure you sort your tickets and accommodation pronto. So news done here, Pete. I think that's a trigger for the next event in our event-driven story. I mean, architecture episode. So event-driven architecture, you know, it's part of the vernacular of those in IT these days. So funny story, Pete, I must admit, you know, my clutch in life for a while has been YouTube. I watch it a bit. And I knew we had to speak about this when my targeted ads were all about event-driven architecture. Before we talk about the history of event-driven architecture, Pete, how about you define for our listeners what exactly is event-driven architecture? All right, cool. Let's get a little bit more formal here. So um, think of an event architecture, it's an architecture pattern that in many ways orchestrates many behaviors around the production, the detection, and also the consumption of events, um, as, as well as how you respond and how they get evoked. Right, so the the event model is really uh, the identification of occurrences that have significance either from a software or from a hardware perspective. Right, so the creator of the event, which is the event source in many ways of looking at it, um, 
generally knows about that the event has actually occurred. And consumers are uh, entities or modules or parts of a system that need to know that the event has occurred. So they have to somehow subscribe or be made aware of those. Uh, and they may be involved in the processing of these events, uh, perhaps ignoring them, uh, but also these end up causing an effect. Right? So there's a side effect incurred by the actual event being raised. So in the context of AWS, the first thing that often comes to mind here is um, AWS Lambda. Right, this fits the bill very nicely. Uh, it's our part of our event-driven. Uh, architecture pattern. You know, it's a it's a serverless computing platform as well that runs your code in response to events that would actually be triggering off something in the platform uh, that lets you build your own handlers to uh, be able to process those. Yeah. So look, let's park Lambda just for the moment and look back at the history of event-driven architecture. Event-driven architecture appears to be an architecture that's popped up, but really it harks back to the 60s in hardware with the dawn of the PLC or Programmable Logic Controller. This revolution was invented for the American automotive manufacturing industry, used to replace rewiring, you know, hardwired control panels with software program changes when production modifications were required. So a sensor might go from high to low and the RTOS or real-time operating system picks this up and will trigger an event based on the state change. So that's hardware. But on the software side of things, it's a design pattern that had its roots in the early 2000s. And whilst we can't take credit for this, I personally think that advent of cloud has had a big part to play here. We say the world is changing. There are new problems that need to be solved. You know, organizations now run global businesses and create seamless applications. The continuous state of change means legacy architectures are really insufficient or unsuitable to meet the needs of consumers today. Pete, when you got started out in this game, you know, I'm not going to ask you how old you are. Is it safe to say you had change windows in your organizations? Yes. Uh, well, first of all, I'm older than 38. And yes, we had lots of change windows. But, um, you know, just because you have change windows, life happens, right? doesn't mean that you always get a chance to implement that change during the window or things may happen before or after as a side effect consequence. So when you think about building architectures, um, I always like to think about your architecture in a couple of different ways. And the way I think about it is when you build it, you really should and often people build it in two modes. One is that it operates in the normal run mode and the other one, it operates perhaps in a failure mode. So you have two ways the platform actually operates. One thing that we've learned at AWS is that if you do that, that means you have to have two ways of understanding how your systems behave. But what if you architected your solution, your architecture to support both at the same time? Right? That would then mean you have less training and retraining needs and you would have inbuilt resilience in your in your, in your solution. Uh, and effectively, that would actually come down to having, you know, architectural design patterns that detect uh, automatic failures and within your environment and your platform is forever responding to what's going on. Hence, there's a bit of a need for that event-driven model. Uh, and as you always know, you know, you never have 100% availability. You know, stuff comes and goes, you know, environments change, network saturation increases, packet flows increase and slow down, systems go on and offline, your tiers may be taken offline like your database tier for, for maintenance or upgrades. Um, but if you actually factor all of, those, all of those elements into your platform and your architecture, and you think about it from an event perspective, something has happened, therefore I'm reacting to it. It's a bit of an observer pattern, if you like, from a software developer perspective. If you apply those concepts, you can come up with some really interesting things where you can actually render change windows almost irrelevant, Shane. You mentioned 100% uptime there just a moment, Pete. Now, I think customers' expectations or you know people's expectations are probably a lot different to what they were 
you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, applications today, they need to be able to run realistically almost 24 by seven with, you know, lots of nines uptimes, probably two nines isn't going to cut it anymore. Maybe we need five nines, um, but they also need to be, you know, really elastic. They need to be globally available, cloud native. Mm-hmm. And this is what customers expect and they demand. And in order to go down this path, the traditional architectures that were maybe, you know, coming from the nineties or eighties, can't meet the challenges of real time and extreme scale. You know, there's no mechanical sympathy, as we say, to address those requirements. And as I say, you know, as we all say, use the right tool for the job. You can't use a time series database, say, for handling relational use cases, or maybe a document database is a great structure, but it's not good at analytics against documents. It sounds like a stretch of the imagination that any architecture could solve such a wide array of challenges. But fundamentally speaking, today we're addressing these new rising needs through microservices, through IoT, event hubs, and so on. And at some point, we need to go back to basics, you know, back to first principles of system design and start again. The common element of all these new world problems is they revolve around the notion of events. And this all started in the early 2000s. Indeed, Shane. So these common elements, um, even though they may have started and become popular in 2000s, they do uh, date back quite a while. And, uh, you know, when you think about it these days, um, you know, design patterns uh, for, you know, asynchronous event processing, right? So the async, you know, command or wait on or the idea of promises in your programming languages, you know, these are all ways of expressing an event-driven, you know, solution uh, via programmatic syntactic sugar, right? So many of these things are fundamentally lying and sitting on top of, you know, queues, notifications, parts of the operating system, part of the hardware, you know, all these things are now being, you know, expressed in programming languages to make it easier for developers, for the builders um, to come up with really clever, intelligent ways of coping with things that are changing all the time. So that's history covered. And before we get into what AWS can bring to this space, the question I like to ask myself or even my customers when evaluating technology is why? You know, there are a lot of cool, shiny objects in IT today. You know, there's SOA, there's CQRS, and so on. You know, are we adopting event-driven architectures because they're just cool, or perhaps it's what the industry is doing? With a fancy title of head of technology covering a few countries, I think this one's over to you, Pete. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Shade. Uh, well, the why, right? It's, um, it's good to be grounded um, rather than chasing all the shiny things. So, uh, look, building systems around an event-driven architecture really simplifies the ability for you to scale horizontally, which is obviously a good thing, as, as hopefully many of you are aware. Uh, but it also makes architectures uh, at the same time more resilient to failure. So that's what I was alluding to earlier about you know, those really high level of high time, availability high times. Um, now, these are good things, but the main reason why event-driven architectures are becoming more and more popular is the fact that they allow actions to be triggered upon things that are actually happening. These events can be initiated based upon, you know, in many cases, external events that occur in the environment in an asynchronous way, right? And when you think about it even further, you know, the, the, fundamentally, the reason why we need to have asynchronous behaviors and eventing um, is because you know we no longer can have an ev- something happen in the system and all of these uh, and that event processed all the way through to the back end and back to the user in reasonable timeframes. That's how we used to build architectures you know, in the early days, but we now find that there's just too much volume, too much scale, and at scale, you need to rethink those models. So the reality is really that, uh, yeah, these shiny models are there, uh, but fundamentally, um, you do need to kind of go back to first principles and go, what am I designing here? What is the scale? What is my fault tolerance that I'm targeting? Um, and the more and more you look at it, uh, eventing, it really is the best. For yeah, as, you, know, you just hit the nail on the head there with scale. I was at a customer site yesterday, Pete, they were talking about 
sending over 15,000 messages through a queuing system per second, you know, that scale. Um, You need to be able to find new and innovative ways to deal with this. And I think event-driven architecture is something that complements service-orientated architecture because services can be activated by triggers fired on incoming events. This is a paradigm shift. You know, you've got to change your way of thinking on how you architect your solutions. Event-driven architecture isn't the holy grail. It's not going to solve all of your needs, but it makes a lot of sense in a lot of applications. And the product I feel that kicked off the event-driven architecture, I guess, paradigm shift, particularly when designing architectures in AWS is Lambda. Now, Lambda launched pre-my time at AWS. It was in November of 2014. But for myself, being in customer land, it opened up a fair few architectural patterns that we hadn't thought of before. You know, at first, we leveraged it as some glue. You know, given the number of event triggers Lambda had, it was great, um, you know, but it set the scene of what was possible. Now, being here, Pete, at the time in Amazon, what did you see in the market? What was the response when Lambda launched? Look, it was really well received. It was, um, you know, in many ways... um, you know, I remember being in a customer meeting and we talked about it and, and I said, hey, look, you, imagine if you could put, put macros between AWS services like you do when you're automating, you know, uh, you know your workflows in, 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 I don't know, in MS Office or something like that. And uh, that kind of made sense for, for those guys at the time. But it's so much bigger than that. You know, we've actually evolved from and I feel like a few shows ago, we talked about the 6550, you know, and, you know, serial controllers having a single byte and moving to multiple bytes then moving to queues to notification services. And as you get bigger and bigger and become on scale, you need to have event handlers. And Lambda really is a, a wonderful, you know, language agnostic mechanism to allow you to actually build event handlers uh, for modern day architectures that fundamentally live on cloud um, and also can support off-cloud systems as well. So this isn't a Lambda show, but as I mentioned, you know, Lambda plays a big part in the event-driven architecture story within AWS. So let's quickly talk about Lambda. So Lambda serverless compute service that runs your code in response to events. You know, it could be like a HTTP request via API gateway or an application load balancer. It could be the creation of an object in an S3 bucket or a state change with step functions and so on. So the code you run on Lambda, it's called a Lambda function. After you create your Lambda function, it's always ready to go as soon as it's triggered. And we support a decent amount of runtimes today. We do. We've got you know Node, we've got Python, Ruby, Java, .NET Core with C Sharp and PowerShell, and there's you know there's also the option to bring your custom runtime. So, like I said earlier, you know it's a it's a really nice way of you know running those event handlers in a polyglot way, uh, and you use the tool or language or framework to uh, best you know uh, solve your particular problem. And I won't spend too much time on this, but if your runtime isn't supported, you can bring your own runtime. You can implement your Lambda runtime in any programming language. Case in point, we don't support PHP as an example. You can use custom runtimes to allow you to bring your own runtime to Lambda. Rule of thumb, and I say this in air quotes, if it runs on Linux, then you can use it as a custom runtime. And look, and serverless also means you know having a very simple but usable set of primitives, right? So your code runs in a Lambda function uh, with nothing that looks like a container or a server. Uh, so you just package your, your, your software, you deploy it, and off it goes. So unlike running things on EC2 or inside containers, uh, you actually only pay for the runtime, not for any idle time um, that's actually being, you know, being there busy waiting, right? So... Uh, Reduction of cost is fantastic um, because it also means that you only pay for, you know, 
cost to serve or execute a function in units of 100 milliseconds, Shane. So it's also a really nice way to economically, and I've talked about this before, it's a nice way of actually having, you know, cloud economics as a part of your architectural facet. So you can actually explain how much it costs to run your uh, your solution. Yeah, look, and cost optimization isn't mutually exclusive to high-performing, you know, architected environments. And I think, you know, given all this, this is why Lambda is perfect for event-driven architectures. You know, it aligns with our architecture pattern here. You know, I mentioned a few triggers here, but do you know how many event sources Lambda has, Pete, in the AWS ecosystem? So, yes, Shane, I had to do a bit of homework here, um, and I did do that. So, there are about 24 event sources, and the list is ever-growing. So, let me run through a few of those for you. So, um, and I might run out of breath. So, we've got SQS, SNS, S3, uh, RDS, Lex, Kinesis Data, Kinesis Data Firehose, Kinesis, IoT Events, EC2, Elastic Cache, DynamoDB, Config, Cognito, Code Pipeline, Code Commit, CloudFront, CloudFormation, CloudWatch Logs, CloudWatch Events, CloudTrail, API Gateway, Alexa, and Application Load Balancer. Whew, that's a fair That's few. an extensive list, and it's awesome. But remember, you can leverage Lambda functions to call other functions that aren't supported by Trigger. You know, I like to keep it real. I spoke in the past episode about my picture processing pipeline at home when we spoke about S3 single region replication. That was an example of Lambda being used in an event-driven pattern. And for those who missed it, I've just got a NAS at home, nothing special, which presents as an SMB share on my network. Upon files being upload, uploaded to the SMB share, it auto-magically uploads to S3. S3 triggers a Lambda function, so on object creation, and Lambda invokes recognition to do some you know, image magic that ends up rewriting data into the EXIF tags of the JPEG image. So EXIF tags, that's the exchangeable image file format. It's basically metadata generated by a camera. I write keywords into these tags, so they're indexable. You know, that's an example of an event-driven architecture. Simple as it may be, you know, it sits there dormant, does nothing until being invoked with an event. It ticks a lot of boxes for me. You know, as you mentioned before, Pete, it's cost effective. It's also timely and it's scalable and really simple to manage. That was myself just having a bit of a play. But there are two architectural patterns that are common in the field to which I want to discuss. Sure. And uh, let me jump right into one of them. That's the first pattern or really is to think about, you know, single page applications or SPAs. Hopefully you've all heard of those. And an SPA is a web app that um, interacts with the user by dynamically, you know, creating content um, uh, on a single page. So if you imagine uh, your virtual whiteboard, so let's cue the virtual whiteboard. Uh, Imagine your web browser uh, hitting a web endpoint uh, of something like, you know, Shane's uh, amazing, cool frontdoorgates.com. <laughs> and uh, you might actually use uh, some JavaScript, some CSS and HTML to build your page. You might use Cognito to authenticate, or maybe you don't. Uh, but fundamentally, you can actually hit the Amazon API gateway endpoint, which will then tri- trigger AWS Lambda. Uh, it'll run some code, and then it might actually deliver that from a DynamoDB table or something else like an S3. So the common pattern here really is that you can leverage, you know, things even like S3 three for static website hosting, uh, team that up with, um, you know, CloudFront uh, to provide access to your actual web application. So all of this stuff can be, you know, semi-dynamic where some stuff sits on S3, the the dynamic content comes out of um, Lambda. Uh, And in fact, uh, we've also published a number of white papers around how you could even move things like, 
uh, an ASP.NET Core application uh, and have it hosted and only pay for the time you invoke your website. So you could actually even move traditional applications, web apps, uh, into this model. So not just do single-page applications, but actually build uh, relatively complex uh, websites and uh, CMS platforms. Yeah, it's a pattern out there. And just to be clear, so the trigger is going to be the code that's embedded within the static HTML content. So it could be like a form action tag or maybe a link embedded going back to API Gateway. So API Gateway is then going to trigger your Lambda function and serve a dynamic portion of your website back. Yeah, so what we've really just described is a, a way for you to host a website that is super cost-effective, uh, very timely, and highly responsive, right? So uh, the cool thing is uh, no traffic, no worries, no pay, right? Uh, there are no containers that are running anything, uh, and you're only using S3 and Lambda in many cases. No load balances were required. Uh, no need to scale your infrastructure. Uh, it's an elegant way to build uh, websites. In fact, actually, um, I can't name the customer, but it's a very popular Australian uh, uh, site that actually gets hit quite heavily. What they do is they actually have a, a dynamic content um, site which they actually scrape and copy into S3. Um, and uh, basically, they get a heck of a lot of scale for very little compute. In the past, they used to scale out the web tier, Shane, and uh, obviously that's, there's a cost involved with that. But they, after talking to us, uh, we actually said, hey, why don't you just copy this into uh, S3? Um, and all of a sudden, you know, you don't have to pay for much of this stuff because uh, much of their content, in fact, most of the content is uh, static. So you can actually come up with some really clever things around cost optimization, high availability um, by actually, uh, you know, doing something really interesting like taking a dynamic site, uh, converting it into a static site, put it into S3, as we just described, and uh, have a massive horizontal scale at very little cost. So great example there of that customer story, Pete. And architectures like that can be run on the cost of a you know a cup of coffee each month, maybe for low volume traffic websites, obviously a lot more cups of coffee if they're receiving a lot more volume. But look, Lambda, as I mentioned earlier, in my mind, really started the event-driven architecture pattern in AWS. Lambda is just one thing, you know, but as we said prior, there are a heap of services that can be pieced together. So it wouldn't be doing the platform justice, the AWS cloud, to stop there. So if we look at the field, customers, perhaps fellow tech chat listeners are choosing to build event-driven applications in which subscriber services automatically perform work in response to events triggered by publisher services. And this is a second area that I see time and time again in the field when we're speaking around event-driven architectures, and this is called event forking. I hope we still got the whiteboard active here, Pete. Yep, so keep your active imagination uh, turned on and uh, functioning. So event forking uh, leans heavily on, obviously, event-driven architectures. Um, and these architectures are evolving. And as customers are choosing to build uh, more apps in this fashion, um, they often look to things like um, forking event processing into multiple pipelines that address many of the common you know, event handling requirements, such as you know, maybe storing uh, your you know, cat dog photos uh, uh, or maybe you know, um, backing up, doing search or analytics uh, or doing replay on uh, an event stream that's been coming on. And the list just keeps going on and on. Yeah, absolutely. And this pattern is more than Lambda and speaks to me more about the cohesive approach of the AWS cloud. Yeah, so event forking is... Uh, typically performing, you know, or employing rather via pub sub, so publish and subscribe mechanisms such as via Amazon uh, Simple Notification Service as an example, uh, which I'm sure hopefully many of your listeners are already familiar with. So imagine that each pipeline is subscribed to 
uh, a single Amazon SNS topic, which allows it to process events in parallel. And as these events are published to the topic, so each pipeline is then independent and can sit on its own subscription filters, if you like. Uh, and this allows a pipeline to process only a subset of the events that it's actually interested in rather than you know, subscribing to everything that's coming through. Uh, so this is essentially the fork. So multiple subscribers to a topic that can then fork out into their own independent pipelines and independent processes that will do whatever it is that they actually require to do. So look, you could have a fork for production and a fork for reporting and a fork for staging and so on. Or perhaps a fork for high priority messages that, um, you know, with uh, granular priority sort of, you know, flows and filters. Uh, so messages still get delivered to the same topic in SNS, but uh, by using filters, they are published to a different pipeline. Yeah, and to make this process of event forking even easier, of course you can you know roll your own event forking solution, but if you put into your favorite search engine AWS event forking, you'll see listed many a link to the AWS event forks pipelines website. So AWS event fork pipelines is a suite of open source nested application based on AWS serverless application model or SAM to which you can deploy directly from the AWS event fork pipeline suite. There are scenarios for multiple solutions from e-commerce to image rendering and replaying of queues. It's a good way to quickly bootstrap yourself with boilerplate code. Specifically, if this architectural pattern is new to your organization or it's a greenfield solution and you don't have a predefined approach already. Yeah, look, and I was looking at the patterns for event search and analytics pipeline. Um, and uh, to get started, as an example, you can subscribe this pipeline to your SNS topic to index um, the events flowing through the SNS topic, uh, and then run analytics on them. So in this example, the pipeline is composed of, as an example, an SQS queue that buffers the events coming uh, that are being delivered by SNS, a Lambda function that then um, uses long polling uh, to actually get messages off the queue and then pushes them into a data firehose delivery stream. Then you got, for example, Amazon Elasticsearch that does indexing uh, on those actually delivered uh, payloads from the stream. And ultimately, an S3 bucket that stores uh, dead letter events that couldn't be indexed or searched uh, appropriately. So it actually covers a, a very common set of uh, uh, use cases that a lot of folks would actually could actually turn on uh, instantaneously by actually using the Event Fork Pipeline Suite. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. And you got me thinking here. All of the events in my house flow into an SNS topic. You know, sometimes I might get a notification when something interesting pops up. But this could probably help me visualize which child leaves the lights on the most. You know, perhaps I can deduct this from their pocket money. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, this could be harsh, Shane. Uh, <laughs> tough love. End it with a negative pocket change. Um, look, in all seriousness, I'm going to endeavor to sharpen the saw here and have a play with this. Seems pretty simple and good. So wins on all fronts here. Yeah, so look, to really summarize this, so event forking is a serverless event-driven design pattern that you can actually reuse. Um, you know, you are really limited by imagination here. You can do a whole bunch of different variations of this in terms of triggers and integration points. Uh, and you can really easily leverage this to make this a part of your event-driven architecture on a native cloud platform. So you just mentioned cloud native here, Pete. What exactly does cloud native mean? Well, what does it mean? Well, by cloud, we often mean leveraging higher order services, right? So we're not talking just about, you know, EC2 and EBS. We're talking about, you know, like Lambda functions and, uh, or DynamoDB. These higher order services uh, typically aren't, aren't really found in your typical data center. It's about um, higher order services that actually perhaps integrate with data-driven architectures and are designed to make use of really flexible and highly scalable um, 
components uh, that are often available only in the cloud. Okay, so all of this sounds positive. You know, it makes sense and I think it's the future. But how does one get started and what skills do I need to get started on this journey? Well, first of all, do you think it's the future? Because I think it's already here. It, it may not be as uh, well distributed in terms of uh, developers' mindsets. But uh, to be honest, look, uh, regardless of what architecture you're targeting uh, or thinking um, to build, uh, it does pay a lot of dividends to actually look at this model. Right? And it really starts with the design and understanding of your problem domain. Um, since no real architectures, tools, or products can help you fix a bad design. So get your design right first. Understand your problem domain. And to be successful in modeling uh, things like event-driven systems, one has to take into consideration lots of different approaches uh, from domain modeling, right? So domain-driven domain, domain -driven design, you know, we're often uh, used to starting with those and looking at objects and, you know, nouns in the domain. Uh, the problem with this is it puts the focus on structure to really, you know, design thinking processes. Uh, so it's often better to start trying to understand what kinds of systems, and if you like verbs, um, you, you will, you know, by focusing on those, this will help you to better understand the event and the information flow and how it drives business logic. So if you think of flows first, uh, that certainly will help you. You think about Conway's law around, you know, information flows to find structure. Uh, that's kind of a, another way of thinking about it. Okay, so I'm going to have to wind it back a little bit here. So you said, do I think it's the future or do it has the future already arrived? When WordPress is available as a single page app, then it's the future. I think, you know, as you said, it's the vernacular, it's here, it's commonplace today. I think personally that there's a little bit to go still. But yeah, absolutely. You know, if I had a greenfield application, this is where I'd be starting. Well, I actually, I actually thought it already happened. Like when you when you could actually do .NET uh, core apps that you would generally run uh, self-hosted by Kestrel on EC2 and be able to just change one line of code uh, essentially uh, and a couple of config entries for that app and have it running uh, as a serverless uh, ASP.NET app. I actually thought that actually happened. So, you know, maybe we can talk to the Word, WordPress folks to see what they can do about uh, <laughs> hosting that in a slightly different way. Awesome. I did see we re released an AWS WordPress plugin actually probably a few days ago. So uh, if you're a WordPress listener, check it out. It'll make things like Poly and CloudFront a lot easier. I do digress though, and back to domain-driven design. I think you know there's many ways to go down that approach. You know, and one of the approaches that I've been involved in in the past is something called event storming. You know, you might put all your stakeholders in the room, bunch of post-it notes, try to figure out how information flows in the system. You know, trying to capture the events, what triggers them. You know, what triggers are available, what commands are available, what effects are these commands going to have. You know, then let these insights drive a definition of a domain models. You know, the bounded contexts and their protocols. Yeah, and look, once you have an event driven design, you know, it's time to really pick the right design, the right patterns for your architecture, right? So for example, considering uh, event streams like, you know, handlers like, you know, Kinesis or Kafka for communications, you know, notifications between, you know, your services, uh, you know, what kind of, um, you know, eventing you're going to look for in terms of API implementations like CQRS, which is really, you know, a way of, you know, it's all sense of command query responsibility or segregation, which is, you know, you know, the reads and writes are separated and, and handled differently as opposed to, you know, one API, you know, and that stuff's been around for a long time. You know, I think uh, it was actually implemented back in, um, in, in Eiffel programming languages that I used many, many years ago. So all of these things are, are kind of really important. So if you look at these patterns, event streaming, CQRS, and stream processing, not only do we have solutions here in our messaging platform, but they all contain triggers that facilitate wiring up our services together. And such, you know, as you know, Pete, to me, this is what makes AWS 
AWS. And I think we've covered getting started here and the approach you should take as you head down this design pattern. But in terms of what skills do you need, what would you advise our customers? Well, you mentioned before that Lambda plays a big part of event-driven architectures and um, obviously learning Lambda plays a huge part here. I would recommend uh, from a skills perspective, you need to uh, pick up a good understanding of how Lambda actually works, you know, everything from you know how you package your applications and a good place to to start really is uh, maybe you should do a you know search for lambda getting started uh, in your favorite search engine and you know follow through the actual tutorials the documentation that we have uh, on how to actually you know build your first serverless application and lambda has uh, lots of different concepts um, to get your head around so things like um, the actual handler uh, the event context uh, the callbacks uh, the familiar kind of you know ways of uh, doing that from your favorite programming language because there's a few little variations here and there, um, and also outside of Lambda, becoming familiar with you know other services such as you know SNS and SQS, uh, so that you actually have a better handle on, or even if you're building Alexa skills, uh, you know how you could actually implement those and what kind of uh, you know events and uh, object context will actually come into your handlers. So there's a little bit of learning, but once you get your um, once you get your head around the actual models. Uh, it's just a, a different context uh, of what's coming in and how you process that. Yeah, you know, that'll really help you wire those things up together. And I'll chime in and say, look at the examples online. You know, you're probably not going to be the first to head down this now well-trodden path and you may find CloudFormation or a SAM template or other snippets of code to help you on your way. Pete, we've spoken about many events today, but we have just executed the last event in our pipeline and really we've just scratched the surface. <laughs> is this one of your dead jokes? Uh, but yes, you're right, Shane. We, we've barely scratched the surface here. Guys, we could talk about this stuff for hours, but uh, we do have a finite steps in our pipeline. Indeed, We do. So to close out the show today, let's summarize. Today was an event-driven themed affair. We started the show talking about event-driven architectures, their genesis in the early 2000s. And just to reconfirm, an event-driven architecture is an architectural pattern that orchestrates the behavior around the production, detection, and consumption events, as well as the responses they evoke. And look, we've also moved on to Lambda as well, uh, which is the service that made event-driven um, architectures a lot more popular inside AWS Cloud. Um, look, Lambda is a service compute service that runs your code in response to events, uh, which is why it's suited for an event-driven architecture. And with about 23-plus different event sources, um, you know, you can actually invoke a heck of a lot of Lambda functions that actually will handle all of your behaviors of your applications that need to respond to a change. And finally, we pivoted to single-page applications and maybe multi-page applications, as well as event forking, uh, which are the two patterns that are commonly used to exploit the benefits of event-driven architectures and what they bring to the table. Yeah, and just on that, let's not forget the AWS Event Forking Pipeline, which is a suite of open source nested applications based on AWS SAM to which you can deploy directly from the AWS Event Fork Pipeline suite. Lastly, we realize event-driven architecture is a bit of a paradigm shift in thinking, so we covered what skills you need and how to get started on this journey. I think we're done here, Pete. Thank you for stopping by. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, any chance I get to talk tech and dive deep into technology, uh, always count me in. And of course, um, you know, let us know. We we we, uh, we thrive on your feedback. So it would be great to hear from all of you listeners out there what else you would like us to focus on. Do you want to hear more about dive deeps like we've been doing for the last few months, or do you want to maybe focus a bit more on what's new? Let us know. We're keen to hear feedback. Yeah, keep the feedback coming. AWS Tech Chat at Amazon.com. As your messages do drive a direction of the show. So remember, we're heading to reInvent this year. We've had a few reach out, but if you're heading down there, we'd love to hear. Join us again in two weeks' time, to which we'll be back with a round of updates that occurred in the last month. But until next time, bye for now.
and keep on building, folks. Ciao. Signing off. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to AWS Tech Chat by visiting www.awstechchat.com.